guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Awesome. <laughs> so uh, I don't think we have a lot of announcements this week. I know last week we did our Skylight Frame giveaway, so we haven't done the drawing yet, but by the time this episode comes out, we will have done the drawing and somebody will have won. Can you believe it? You won. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's one person. (laughs) So we're recording this on Friday and the drawing is going to be on Sunday and the episode will be out on Tuesday. So it's all it's all happening somehow in this time period. So, yeah, we don't know who it is yet as as of right now. But by the time this episode airs, we will know who it is. So, yeah, hopefully it's you. There you go. Good luck. May the force be. Wait, no, that's not the right one. I knew I was going to do that one wrong. May the force be with you. Also, may the odds be ever in your favor. And what other ever other movie quote could go there? But one of you will win. So Wait, good luck. Were you right? S- oh, I thought you were saying like the, you know, the like funny ha 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 like may the fourth be with you. <laughs> Did I actually say may the fourth be with you? I might have because my husband was just reminding me it's may the fourth. Yeah, and I was like I don't care, and <laughs> so maybe that's why it was in my head. <laughs> may the fourth and may the fourth be with you. Both of them. Why not both? Why not both? In these times, why not both, Mandy? Okay, we have got to get into this because I'm going to have fun editing whatever just happened there. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we will just get right into the episode this week. So everybody knows that love is one of the most powerful forces on earth, and it really drives people to do all kinds of things that they may or may not have done otherwise. In some cases, love encourages someone to realize their maximum potential. And in other cases, love drives people to do really unspeakable things. One topic that um, I've always really been fascinated with is the concept of somebody seeking out a relationship with someone who's already incarcerated for a serious crime, like a felony. When a person is attracted to others that have committed various undesirable acts, such as cheating, lying, or even violent crime, it can actually be classified as what is called hybristophilia. There are numerous well-known cases of this that we've actually seen with jail weddings in which murderers are finding love and getting married from behind bars. Usually this happens with a pen pal or someone that admires them that they have been corresponding with in some way. Some of the infamous murderers that you might recognize that actually got married after they were incarcerated are Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, both of the Menendez brothers, and Richard Ramirez. So this week, we're not talking about an infamous murderer who got married behind bars, but we are talking about a convicted felon with numerous violent crimes under his belt that managed to really woo a prison nurse and eventually convinced her to marry him and help him escape from prison. This story takes place in Kingston, Tennessee, and before we get into the details, we're going to tell you a little about Kingston in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Kingston, Tennessee is located in eastern Tennessee and as of the 2010 census has a population of around 5,900 residents. If it's ever under 20,000, just know I'm going through the state and finding facts. There's not going to be a whole lot. So Tennessee, I love you because this week I've only got one fact that's not about food. So I'm going to leave with that one and then we'll get into the delicious stuff. So while we know that the capital of Tennessee now is Nashville, it's actually gone through several different capitals. In fact, back in 1805, the capital of Tennessee was actually Knoxville. It was at this time that the Cherokee actually struck a deal with Tennessee settlers and agreed to transfer thousands of acres of land to the settlers as long as they could change the state capital and have it become Kingston. The Tennessee settlers agreed, and for one day, Kingston was declared the capital. 
the very next day they went back into their like governmental system and I think like that I use governmental system because I don't remember (laughs) (laughs) what the word is and so geography no that's not even geography (laughs) civics is going terrible in my house (laughs) so the very next day though the capital they reverted back to Knoxville they literally took the land and then in one day they were like okay you can have this the next day they changed it which is just terrible but the facts from here on out are delicious and not at all nutritious and may make you pull up your calendar to see just when your next dental cleaning is So speaking of dental cleanings, Mandy, did you know that the very first cotton candy machine was invented in Tennessee by a dentist? Wow. I know. There really isn't a whole lot of reactions (laughs) you could have to that's either yes or no. And you gave me wow. I really appreciate it. (laughs) So a dentist by the name of William Morrison and a candy maker by the name of John Wharton actually invented cotton candy in 1897. When it made its debut at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, it was a huge hit, and they sold over 68,000 boxes for just 25 cents a piece. I didn't do the math on how many dollars that is, but just divide it by four, and that's that's your answer on how many dollars they made. So continuing their quest to be the state that should buy stock in Colgate, the only acceptable form of Pepsi products, which is Mountain Dew, was actually invented in Tennessee. Two brothers named Allie and Barney Hartman invented it as a mixer to cut down the pungent taste of homemade moonshine. Ew. Oh my right? gosh. Moonshine and Mountain Dew. That's <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like I feel like things are getting worse and not better in this <laughs> scenario. <laughs> but Pepsi apparently was all about it because in 1964 they bought the lemon lime drink. And I'm thankful because without it, what am I gonna do when I go to a place that only serves Pepsi products? Drink water? and while we're at it second pass on places that serve you unsweet tea with three packs of sugar on the side when you ask for sweet tea while it's super cute you think that people that like sweet tea only want three packets of sugar (laughs) do us a favor hand us 20 that way we can act like it's an insane amount and like why would anybody use 20 so when we use eight it doesn't look so bad we look very (laughs) normal (laughs) when we leave you with 12 so and like you know you don't have a problem but this just made me realize that maybe me and my chompers really should make a visit to Tennessee. That's like where it's at, Mandy. Sugar yeah. and sugar <laughs> and food. I'm just like so pumped about it and clearly like on sugar. So there you go. That's all I got. <laughs> all right. Jennifer L. Forsyth was born on February 11th, 1974 to parents Floyd and Sally. Her mother described her as being a good kid who never got into trouble, but had a gullibility for men. When Jennifer was told to do something, she would usually just do it blindly without really thinking over the potential consequences. When she was in high school, she met a boy named Eli Gordon. And when they graduated in 1992, the couple got married at just 18 years of age. By the time they were married, Jennifer was already three months pregnant with their first child. Despite having a rocky marriage filled with arguments, drugs, and alcohol, the young couple managed to stick it out for eight years and eventually had three children in total, two sons and a daughter. Jennifer and Eli divorced in 2000, and Jennifer got custody of all three of their children. It wasn't long before she remarried, and it wasn't long after that before she started having an affair with a man that she met at her wedding. So this will be her second wedding. That's a convenient place to meet somebody. Yeah. Everybody's there in the spirit of love. Might as well pick somebody up. Typically not the bride. Yeah. The bride is not normally <laughs> the one that finds love. Yeah. But, you and know. I guess if it was a guest at the wedding, it must have been a guest of the groom if it was someone that <gasps> she didn't know b- before oh, yeah. if she met this person at the wedding. So how bad does that make, you know, how bad would that make your new husband feel if your wife 
met someone else, like met one of your friends at your wedding. Just I knew terrible. as I stood and <laughs> stared in your eyes and said our vows that your friend that was three rows down <laughs> to the back left. All eyes for him. <laughs> I knew that was the moment. Yeah. So when Jennifer's new husband learned about this infidelity, he left her and then the new boyfriend quickly moved in. However, Jennifer ended up having an affair with his best friend. So their relationship also ended up not working out. I wonder if he was like at the reception and she was just <laughs> everybody knew one time. Yeah. So in mid-2001, Jennifer's friend Tina, who lived in Nashville, Tennessee, invited Jennifer to come for a visit. And after seeing the area and spending some time there, Jennifer fell in love with Tennessee and decided to pack her children up and move there. At this time, all of her children were under the age of 10. In early 2004, Jennifer became a licensed practical nurse and took a job working at Northwest Correctional Complex, where she provided health care service to inmates. According to a documentary on YouTube, in which Jennifer herself was actually interviewed, her life as a prison nurse was sometimes extremely uncomfortable due to several male inmates that sexually harassed her and would flash their genitalia at her every time she had to go into their cells to treat them for really anything. At some point, Jennifer had enough of the unwanted advances from these inmates, and according to her, a guard at the prison actually suggested that she become friends with an inmate named George Hyatt. Allegedly, George was really feared around the prison, and the idea was that if he kind of followed Jennifer around, that the other inmates really wouldn't bother her because they were scared of George. Which, if everyone's scared of him, maybe there's a reason to be scared of them. him, and why is this the guy following her around? I, I can only follow that train of thought so far. Yeah. <laughs> and then be like, if he's not a good guy, why is he following her around? That's not really, not super helpful. So whether or not this part is true... George and Jennifer met and a relationship of some type actually emerged. George Carlton Hyatt was born on June 30th, 1971. Sources only state his mom's name, so it's reasonable to assume that he was possibly raised in a single-parent household. George's foray into bad behavior began very early on, and by the age of nine, he had already found himself in hot water for truancy and quote-unquote unruly behavior. His teen years were rough, and by the age of 17, he'd already been through an alcohol and drug treatment program. A short time later, he dropped out of high school, and from there, he began living his life of crime. His rap sheet actually began as soon as he was 18 years old, and he accumulated convictions in multiple counties across the state. Some of the sources kind of contradicted each other as it pertains to George's exact crimes and convictions, but we're going to summarize the things that he got in trouble for over the years. He was really involved in several things. So he was involved in crimes such as theft, drug possession, forgery, aggravated robbery, and more. But George wasn't just a seasoned criminal. He was also an escape artist. George successfully escaped from a Kingston jail in 1998 and was recaptured after one day on the loose. He was then sentenced to 36 months for the escape. He also escaped from jail in 2002. In July of that same year, George was arrested for robbery, and in the following month, he was arrested again for aggravated robbery and sent to serve time in Rhea County Jail. After spending a few months behind bars for that crime, George and another inmate at the jail escaped on November 23, 2002, after they threatened the guards with a knife that they made from toothbrushes and a razor blade. So this sounds very um, standard for like jailhouse weaponry that you see on television that you just don't even think is actually a real thing, but apparently it is a real thing. 
So the two men got one guard to give them a key, and then they beat a second officer until he became unconscious, and then they were able to flee outside where there were actually two men waiting to help them escape. But George wasn't very good at escaping jail and laying low, and within days, all four of the men that were involved were arrested at a DUI checkpoint in southwest Florida. This time, George was charged with escape and also two counts of aggravated assault against the prison guards. There are some sources that say he made an escape in 1990 and another one in 1991, but we couldn't really find anything official to verify that aside from just a few articles that listed those years. At the end of 2002, George began serving a 35-year sentence for aggravated robbery and aggravated assault. He was sentenced to serve this time at the Northwest Correctional Complex. And so we don't know the exact details of the crime that he committed, but a 35-year sentence tells us that it was probably pretty severe. They don't hand out. It probably involved, you know, a weapon of some kind and definitely very violent. So they gave him a very long sentence. So it was while he was serving this sentence that he met Jennifer. While George was in prison, he joined a gang and he became known as a pretty intimidating guy. And that was exactly what he wanted. He enjoyed having this persona of being this bad guy, you know, that everybody wanted to stay away from. Jennifer was totally fine with George being somewhat of a protector to her, but it wasn't long before George started pushing for something more than just a friendship. According to Jennifer, he would start giving her money and telling her to go get her hair and nails done. And I am very confused. Melissa, do people have jobs when they're in jail that they earn money that they can give to their girlfriend? You do, but it's very, very, very minimal. You're not making anything. I mean, you're making like I don't know if this is if this is the most accurate number. I've heard like 25 cents an hour on stuff. Oh, yeah. So well, you're he not, worked I mean, a long time to get those nails. He worked 30 <laughs> of those 35 years. Yeah, it would be a long time. So he had to have like somebody else sending him money or something really for him to be able to give her money. That's what I would assume. Yeah. So Jennifer appreciated the cash and it, she thought it was all a nice gesture. But more than that, she really loved the way that she felt when she was hanging out with George. She said that he made her feel special, and over time, she began to feel like she was falling for him. George manipulated Jennifer into believing that he had been wrongfully convicted of the crimes that he was serving time for and that he was innocent, and because of how Jennifer felt about George romantically, she really wanted to believe him, and so she did believe him, and she believed, based on what he told her, that it was only a matter of time before he was going to be a free man. In the summer of 2004, Jennifer and George's relationship was going strong, and Jennifer began dabbling in smuggling things into the prison for her new boyfriend. She gave him large sums of money and eventually smuggled a cell phone in for him to use. According to Jennifer, though, the cell phone ended up being a ball and chain for her that she greatly regretted providing to him, but we'll get more into that in a minute. In August, she got caught bringing shrimp to George, and she was fired from her job at the prison. Jennifer thought that that may be the end of the relationship since she was no longer working inside the prison, but George continued to call Jennifer and even sent gifts to her and her family members, as well as letters where he professed his undying love for Jennifer. To prove his affection and loyalty, George asked Jennifer to marry him. Jennifer's family remembered George as being very sweet and knew that Jennifer was really in love with him. In November of 2004, Jennifer filed for divorce from her second husband and committed to her relationship with George. But things started taking a turn when George began to exhibit some really controlling behavior. He would use the cell phone that Jennifer provided him with to call her at all hours of the day, and he would even make her sleep with the phone to her ear. 
If she didn't answer the phone and keep him on the line at all times, he would verbally abuse her and call her names. Eventually, George began insisting that Jennifer let him listen in on every single conversation she had, so she would have to leave the phone in her pocket and use an earpiece so that he could hear everything she said. Jennifer wasn't allowed to call her own family without him being on the line to hear what she was saying. And Jennifer's family began to feel like she was being brainwashed by George. And we're going to get into what happens next after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. More than 30 million women experience hair loss, but it's not something we really openly talk about. And because it's not something we talk about, it's easy to feel like you're alone in dealing with it. My already thin hair has thinned even more over the past few years, and it turns out stressing about it doesn't help either, so there's that. So I'm super excited to try Nutrafol, which is formulated with potent botanicals to help grow and strengthen your hair. Plus, it's physician-formulated and 100% drug-free. Even if you aren't experiencing thinning hair, Nutrafol can help you grow thicker and stronger hair. If you visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz, you can get customized product recommendations that allow you to put the power to grow thicker and stronger hair back into your own hands. Plus, when you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you don't have to think about when you need to order, and that means you'll never miss a dose. Shipping is also free, and you can pause or cancel at any time. 97% of women actually reported more confidence after taking six months of Nutrafol, so I can't wait to see my results. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code MOMS to get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere, plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, promo code MOMS. Their best offer anywhere. 20% off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code MOMS for hair as strong as you are. I love having my kids FaceTime my parents, and I don't know how things go for you, but here, that call is a complete mess. It's full-blown chaos and noise, and it's not always easy for my parents to even see my kids because they are literally bouncing off the walls. That's just one reason why I'm so excited to give my mom the Skylight Frame for Mother's Day. Skylight Frame is such a great way to stay connected to my mom and send her photos of the kids where she can actually see the kids, even though we're miles apart. You can set up your Skylight Frame effortlessly in under one minute. You just plug it in, use the touchscreen to connect to your wireless network and you're in business. And beyond the setup, Skylight is super easy to use. As moms, we take a ton of photos of our kids. So now when you get a photo you really love, you can just email it to your Skylight frame and it shows up automatically on the beautiful 10-inch touchscreen black frame in just seconds. So you can look and swipe through your collection. Plus, you can give the special Skylight email to everyone in your family so they can send photos to be displayed on your frame. I have my moms all set up and have my sister send a few pictures already. So when she opens it next week, she already has preloaded photos we can always add on to. If you're still looking for the perfect gift for your mom or still thinking of the perfect gift that you would like for Mother's Day, check out Skylight Frames. And if for some reason you don't love your Skylight Frame, they will offer you a full refund. Now, as a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash momsmurder and enter code momsmurder. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com slash momsmurder and enter code momsmurder. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash mom's murder. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about this complicated relationship between an inmate at Northwest Correctional Complex named George Hyatt and his new love interest and former prison nurse named Jennifer. 
George had a long history of being a smooth-talking ladies' man, and he used his charm to seduce Jennifer and eventually convinced her to carry on a relationship with him. At some point after Jennifer was fired from her job at the prison, which can you imagine losing your job over shrimp? No, it is. Well, it's the fancier of the foods to get fired over, I guess. It's better than like chicken nuggets, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Not much, but it's better. (laughs) Yeah. So after Jennifer was fired from her job at the prison, George was actually moved to another prison called Riverbend. Because of his violent history and his history of escapes, he was considered a close custody inmate and he wasn't allowed to have any visitors at all. You would think this might pose a problem for a couple who wanted to get married, but Jennifer and George didn't let that stop them. Jennifer asked the Nashville prison warden for permission to marry George, and the warden cautioned Jennifer against this relationship and made sure to tell her all about George's criminal background, as well as making them meet with a minister for premarital counseling sessions. Despite the minister also discouraging this union, Jennifer and George were married on May 20th, 2005 in a non-contact wedding. They were not allowed to kiss or have any physical contact whatsoever because George was under this high security. Even getting married did not change George's visitation rights, and Jennifer still was not allowed to visit him in jail, but she was going to be able to call and write him letters. In July of that year, Jennifer became so overwhelmed with how controlling George had become, and she attempted to take her own life by overdosing on prescription medications. George, who, as we said before, was always listening to what Jennifer was doing with this cell phone that he had, actually heard her taking these pills and he ended up calling her and urging her to take herself to the hospital. He convinced her to go and she ended up making a full recovery, but the drama was far from over. George started telling Jennifer that everything would just be fine if he could get out of prison and be with her the way that he really wanted to. And from there, the couple really began planning how they could bust George out of jail. And they decided that in order to pull this off, they would need an extra car, a gun, and some extra money. It was unclear from the research exactly what occupation Jennifer's father had, but we'd have to assume that it's something in the field of corrections because Jennifer stupidly asked him if he had any spare handcuff keys. You know, the spare ones that everyone has. Yeah, like, hey, dad, do you happen to have something I can borrow? Handcuff keys. (laughs) Yeah. No big deal. No need to ask questions. Totally normal. So Jennifer's father obviously thought this was a red flag, and rightfully so. He knew about Jennifer's relationship with George and believed that she intended to slip George the key so that he could escape. Floyd, who was Jennifer's dad, contacted a probation officer in Utah to tell the Tennessee authorities about his suspicions. But at the time of the tip, the Utah Department of Corrections didn't feel that it was serious enough or warranted an investigation, so they never warned Tennessee authorities. That's crazy to me that you could get a tip that says, hey, somebody I know who's married to somebody who's escaped several times at this point just ask me for handcuff keys do you think we could just put a call out to you know the other just state? let them know yeah that's really weird that they just didn't think it was that big of a deal right i'm sure they have a lot of you know crazy tips and calls and stuff like that but if, if you know somebody's an escaped inmate i would think that would be like up there like obviously you don't want that happening happening again so while all this was going on jennifer's children were staying with their father eli for the summer in utah Jennifer told Eli about how excited she was because her new beau was going to be released from prison soon, and Eli's new wife, Katie, said that Jennifer was, quote, very much in love with George. 
As we mentioned before, part of the couple's escape plan included having a getaway car available, which of course was up to Jennifer to figure out because George was behind bars. One afternoon while working as a home healthcare nurse, Jennifer decided to steal the client's van to use as their getaway car. After she stole the van, she parked it at a sandwich shop around half a mile from the courthouse and left it there overnight. The next day was the day she was going to help George escape from Brushy Mountain, which is where he was serving his time for the aggravated robbery and assault charges. On August 9th, 2005, George was scheduled to appear before a judge to plead guilty for the July 2002 robbery charge and receive his sentence for that crime. He was transported from the prison to the Rowan County Courthouse in Kingston by two officers named Larry Harris and Wayne Morgan, and he was ushered inside to see the judge. George pleaded guilty to his crimes, and people who witnessed this said that he was gazing out the window and he was apparently very broken up about what he had done. And Jennifer was in the courtroom sitting in the front row, and she watched as George was sentenced to six years for this July 2002 robbery, which was going to be in addition to the 35 years that he was already serving for the other aggravated robbery and assault. As George stood up to face the judge, he looked over at Jennifer and gave her a little nod as if to kind of say, it's showtime. And with that, Jennifer got up and left the courtroom and put their plan into motion. It was just after 10 a.m. when George's court appearance was over and it was time to take him back to the prison. While the officers were preparing George for transport, Jennifer went outside and moved her SUV into the parking stall next to where the prison transport van was parked, and she waited for George to be led back to the van. When George and the two officers reached the van, he started to squirm and try to break free from their grip. And when he was unable to free himself and a physical battle started to really ensue out there in the parking lot, George shouted at Jennifer to shoot Officer Wayne Morgan. As an officer, those would be some terrifying words to hear when you have this inmate who is is physically fighting you. And all of a sudden he says to they you don't know who he's saying this to, you know, all they're hearing is the words shoot him. When George said that. The officers turned and looked to see who he was even yelling at, and they were met with the sight of Jennifer standing in what they called a shooting stance and pointing a gun directly at them. Officer Morgan quickly put his hands up and said no before Jennifer pulled the trigger and fired a shot into his stomach. He was not wearing a bulletproof vest. Jennifer then pointed the gun at Officer Harris, and they exchanged fire as Jennifer and George ran and scrambled to try and get inside the SUV. Officer Harris emptied his six-shot revolver and then grabbed Officer Morgan's gun and continued to fire on George and Jennifer, but they managed to get away. Once the suspects were gone and the immediate threat to Officer Harris's life was over, he went to check on his partner. Officer Morgan was in really bad shape. He'd been shot multiple times, and as we had just mentioned, he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest. Both officers actually had vests, but they didn't fit properly, so they didn't have them on that day. A month prior to the shooting, Brushy Mountain had put in an order to have officers fitted for vest, but it hadn't been approved yet. As for Officer Harris, a bullet had grazed his right arm, and another ricocheted bullet hit him in the stomach, but he didn't have any life-threatening injuries. In the gunfire, Jennifer was also shot in the leg. Officer Wayne was quickly airlifted to the University of Tennessee Medical Center, where he was sadly pronounced dead within an hour of arrival. Police immediately deployed helicopters to search for Jennifer and George. There was absolute chaos in the immediate area as officers contacted local schools and had them locked down, and medical facilities were notified to be on the lookout for the fugitives. 
Authorities asked the public to send in tips but warned them to stay far away from the couple as they were armed and dangerous. And we're going to get right into the conclusion of this wild story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Is there anything more exciting than seeing your friendly neighborhood postal worker walking up to your door with a package you've been on your phone tracking all day? Well, if you use the free online shopping tool, Honey, then you also saved money on your new delivery, and that makes your new purchase that much sweeter. I feel like I'm cooking for my family around the clock right now, and you can only burn so many grilled cheese sandwiches in your 14-year-old pans before you run to the internet to find a new one. I found a really nice nonstick pan at Macy's that's a little more expensive than I wanted to pay, but at checkout, the Honey drop-down menu came down, I clicked Apply All Coupons, and Honey searched the entire internet and found a coupon that saved me $12 within seconds. Not only did I save money, I was thrilled that I didn't have to open up 30 other tabs searching for store codes that are always expired or invalid. Honey saves you money and from internet rage. Join the over 18 million members who have already saved over $2 billion in savings while using Honey. Not using Honey is literally passing up free money. It's free to use and installs in just a few seconds. Plus, it's backed by PayPal so you know you can trust it. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com moms. That's joinhoney.com moms. Sometimes in life, things can be good one minute and start to feel really out of control the next. Your mind is all over the place and you're struggling to find balance and peace. Or maybe you have critical things going on in your life that you need to discuss with someone and just have the opportunity to let it all out. BetterHelp Online Counseling may be the solution you've been looking for. I signed up for BetterHelp a few months ago, and when I signed up, I took a short quiz to figure out exactly what I was looking for in a counselor and was matched right away to a counselor who I really enjoy talking to. My counselor is helping me work through some things I've actively been trying to avoid. I love that I have the option to speak with her by video chat or by phone call. I personally prefer phone calls so I can look like a hot mess while we speak, plus I can message her throughout the week to check in. She sent me articles to read and makes me feel like she's genuinely invested in the things I want to work on. Being able to speak to my counselor from home and at times I can make work is one of the best gifts I've been able to give to myself and honestly to my family. Everything you share with your counselor is confidential and BetterHelp can match you with a counselor who is specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and more. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before we took a break, we were up to the point in the story where George and Jennifer Hyatt had just exchanged fire with two prison officers, fatally injuring one of them named Wayne Morgan. Wayne Thomas Cotton Morgan was born on October 31st, 1948 in Harriman, Roa, Tennessee. The nickname Cotton came from the head of white hair that he was born with that evidently did not turn brown until he was an adult and had already served a stint in the army in Vietnam. He continued to go by the name Cotton for really the rest of his life. Cotton was the eighth of 10 children born to his parents who had really suffered their fair share of grief after one of the children died at birth and another was killed in 1976 after being shot by an officer for resisting arrest. The officer who shot Cotton's brother, whose name was Richard, was actually later charged in the shooting, which was deemed, quote, unlawful and felonious. But unfortunately, there isn't more information available on that case or whether or not that officer was actually convicted. Cotton and his siblings grew up on a farm and they were very, very close knit as a family. 
His father passed away in 1999, but Cotton found comfort in some of his favorite activities, including hunting, gathering ginseng from the mountains, cutting hay, beekeeping, and and also gardening. And he had both flower and vegetable gardens. He graduated from Central High School in Wartburg and went on to join the Army in 1969. He was an infantryman in Vietnam, serving for two years and earning a Purple Heart. While in the Army, Cotton married his wife, Vianne, and they had a son and a daughter together. One of the most important things about Cotton that his sister said he would want everyone to know is that he was very passionate about his faith. He taught Sunday school, sang in the choir, and was also a deacon at his church. He was known to minister patients in a nursing home and in the county jail, and his siblings said that he was a very, very religious man who always wanted everybody to know that he was a Christian. Cotton had worked at Brushy Mountain as a corrections officer for 27 years before his tragic murder, but he had only been a transport officer for about one year. Cotton was very well liked among the inmates at the prison, and he did work as a volunteer chaplain, and he earned the respect of the men that were incarcerated there. One of Cotton's co-workers said, quote, Cotton had an impact on everybody he came into contact with. He was just a good man all the way around. One of those guys who stood out and you'll always remember. Cotton was actually so well-loved around the prison that officials feared for Georgia's safety if he were to be returned to that same prison. They worried that other inmates would actually kill him in retaliation. But first, they had to find him in order to even figure out where they were going to send him back to. After the shooting, the couple had fled the courthouse parking lot and drove to the sandwich shop where Jennifer had already parked their getaway vehicle. From there, they drove about 275 miles, a four-hour trip, to Erlinger, Kentucky, which is basically where Kentucky meets Indiana and Ohio. When they arrived there, Jennifer rented a hotel room at an Econo Lodge and then went out and bought a hacksaw. Not really sure exactly what this could be, you know, used for, because Jennifer quickly was able to get George out of his handcuffs, and she worked to change her own appearance by cutting and dyeing her hair. They threw away George's prison jumpsuit and the murder weapon in the hotel's dumpster and settled in for the night. The next morning, they hired a taxi to drive them from Erlinger to Columbus, Ohio. This was about a two-hour drive, and they paid the driver $200 up front to take them. They told the taxi driver that they were headed to an Amway convention in Columbus, but the driver thought that seemed fishy because they didn't really seem like Amway representatives, and he was troubled by the fact that Jennifer appeared to be injured, favoring one leg since she had been shot. It's a very specific thing to be like, we're going to the Amway convention and not try to sell him on Amway. I'm not buying that at all. That's probably why I didn't think they seemed like Amway people. They didn't try to get him to join their pyramid. So (laughs) when he asked her about it, she told him that he'd been in a car accident recently. The driver then dropped them off at an America's Best Value Inn and went on his way. But he was sure that they were up to something and it had nothing to do with Amway. Once the two of them had checked into their new hotel room, they settled in and ordered Mexican food and kicked back to watch some TV. This is like their only time they've ever been together. Right. They booked three nights at the hotel and paid for the room in cash. Later that evening, the taxi driver was back at his home playing video games when a friend casually mentioned to him that there was this fugitive couple's stolen van and that had been found and that they believed that a taxi had been there to pick them up at some point. So the driver was convinced that Jennifer and George were the people that police were looking for. So he contacted the police to let him know exactly where he had taken them. Meanwhile, Jennifer's ex-husband, Eli, got wind of what Jennifer had done, and he filed an emergency motion for immediate custody of his children, as well as a restraining order against Jennifer. 
36 hours after the shooting on August 10th, more than 25 officers surrounded the couple's hotel room and prepared to take them down. Deputy Marshal Nikki Ralston called the couple's room, and when Jennifer answered the phone, the deputy said, hey, Jennifer, and Jennifer responded with, yes. And so then the officers knew that they had the right person and the right room. That was very easy. Yeah. So Deputy Ralston said to Jennifer, quote, you need to get George. Both of you need to exit the hotel room and follow the direction of the officers who will be to your immediate right. Jennifer knew they were caught and there was really no way out of this. So she exited the room and she was limping and she was begging the officers not to hurt George and screaming these things at George saying, you know, it will be okay, baby, it'll be okay. And so George exited the room and got on his knees to be handcuffed without any fight at all. Inside the hotel room, officers found empty beverage cans, empty boxes of takeout and weapons. One of the mattresses was also halfway off the box spring. George was immediately taken to Franklin County Jail and booked while Jennifer was taken to a local hospital to be treated for her bullet wound before she was also booked into jail. Both of them were charged with federal charges of unlawful flight, but those charges were dropped quickly so that they could be transported back to Tennessee to face state murder charges. Uh, Haley researched this episode for us, and she had a little note about how she had in her course of researching things, she said she's seen this before about how it's common for them to drop federal charges in order to get more serious state charges going. It's not something that I ever really thought about as happening, but I guess that makes sense that they would like initially charge them right. just to get them on something. And then, you know, they will go back and say, you know, we're going to send you back to Tennessee and get you on murder charges and not just these flight charges. Yeah. So Jennifer actually fought extradition back to Tennessee after the judge told her that she could face the death penalty in the state of Tennessee, and she really appeared dazed at her court hearing. When George found out that Jennifer was fighting her extradition, he decided to fight his as well, stating, quote, I don't want to leave without her. I don't want to. I don't want to. It didn't matter anyway, because on August 23rd, they were both extradited back to Tennessee. And when they appeared in a Tennessee courtroom for the first time, there were more than 40 officers, some wearing bulletproof vests, while others actually held guard with shotguns. While Jennifer was in jail, prison officials found and confiscated several letters in a 34-page diary titled A Modern Day Bonnie and Clyde. The diary begins with Jennifer talking about her life growing up in Utah. Her first memory, she said, was of her parents' divorce and how she and her sister had to split their time between the two homes. When her father remarried, he stopped having Jennifer and her sister around as much. Four years later, a family member of her new stepmother began molesting Jennifer and her sister, and they never told anyone. Jennifer said in the diary that she began using drugs and alcohol at the age of 15, and eventually she said she would be quote-unquote sold off for drugs if she and her first husband didn't have money for them. She wrote about how she had finally been able to take control of her own life, and that the 36 hours she spent on the room with George were the best of her life. The letters also revealed a somewhat written confession. She wrote about helping George escape and shooting the guards and said that she took antibiotics and pain medication for the bullet wound. Jennifer wrote that she and George were more than soulmates. They had a celestial love and that they were two halves of the same soul. Officer Colton's life was honored on August 12th. He was buried in Warburg, Tennessee with full military honors. A 21-gun salute, taps, and a flyby from four helicopters. There were around 1,000 people in attendance, including the governor of Tennessee, Phil Bredesen. The funeral was held at Wartburg Central Middle School in the gym, and the governor spoke for about five minutes and then presented the Morgan family with a Tennessee Medal of Valor. 
On September 17th, 2007, Jennifer pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and facilitating an escape. She was sentenced to life without parole for the murder, 15 years for the attempted murder, and three years for the escape charge. She was able to avoid the death penalty by agreeing to testify against George when it was time for him to go to trial. But on March 9th, 2009, George actually avoided trial at all by pleading guilty to the same charges as Jennifer, except his was a felony escape charge instead of just facilitating. He was sentenced to life without parole for first-degree murder, 15 years for the attempted murder, and three years for the felony escape. Neither of them have appealed their sentences, which could be explained by... It could have been part of their plea deals that, that you know, they're not allowed to right. go and try to um, go for an appeal, uh, but they have not appealed. And George is currently incarcerated at the West Tennessee State Penitentiary in Lauderdale County, which how many jails and prisons are in Tennessee? Because it seems like it just in this story alone, right. George has been inside of every single one. Yeah, you know, no he's kidding. Been to like, I mean, I at least like five or six that were just in this episode right. alone, you know, and not including his earlier years or anything. It's just crazy to me. I was like, wow, how many, I guess I didn't realize there was that many jails in one state. Yeah. So Jennifer is serving her time at the Tennessee prison for women in Nashville. In November of 2014, she created a profile on a prison pen pal website and listed her relationship status as a divorced. In 2009, Brushy Mountain Prison was relocated to the new Morgan County Correctional Complex around 10 miles away. They put up a plaque to honor Officer Cotton, and the road where the new prison was built was actually renamed to be Wayne Cotton Morgan Drive. This story is so upsetting and so... It, none of this ever had to happen. It doesn't make any rational sense at all that you would kill somebody to get your jailed boyfriend out for 36 hours, and then now, guess what? They can't ever talk to each other ever again. You know they're not going to let them talk between prisons, for goodness sakes. Then there's no communication. Well, no. And so best case scenario, what what was best case scenario? You got away forever. Have you never watched a movie? This doesn't even happen. Well, he's escaped before and he's been caught like the next day. So obviously he should have known. Like, right. He's not really even good at escaping or hiding Terrible. or anything because, yeah. And like, so his own experience should have told him like that wasn't going to be a plan that worked for him. And, and, and unfortunately this you know, on this particular time, an innocent person lost their life. It's yeah. very tragic and very sad for Cotton's family and his his sons and his son and daughter and his wife and just absolutely terrible to even think about officers going to work like that and they're already putting their lives in danger and that has to be just the most heartbreaking thing for his family that he was killed in that type of a way while he was on the job. So it was nice that we got a little glimpse into his life. He seemed like a very nice and loving guy who really wanted to help people. I'm glad that they were named, you know, renamed these things and they have the plaque in his honor and and stuff. I'm sure obviously that doesn't make things better for the family, but it's, it's nice that they're remembering him in that way. So just a sad story. And just, it's hard to even understand the mind of somebody who could go along with this. I mean, obviously she felt like she was very manipulated um, manipulated, and he was controlling and stuff, but it's it's a tough one to understand how, how it got to that point, really. Definitely. So, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page and move to Last Thing Before We Go? We are, and it's part of our favorite thing to do on Last Thing Before We Go, and that is the hero segment we're doing. It's the beginning of the month, so we are doing our hero segment. And 
it's Mother's Day coming up when you listen to this, just a few days, and it's not always an easy day for everyone. Um, but we do want to honor the moms that are out there. I guess us included. Let's honor us too. We can be honored yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. But um, hey, someone's got to do it. <laughs> so I looked for in our in our email through um, the heroes that have been nominated, and I just typed in the word "mom" to see if anybody <laughs> nominated their mom. And I cannot believe I haven't seen this one before because it's such a good one, and I'm so thankful I didn't see it before because this is a great time to talk about this. This is from Nikki M. Her nomination for last name before we go is her mom, her adopted mom. She says, "My adopted mom is so selfless. She has taken in over 500 children and." help them along the way. She's adopted 12 children. She gave up her life and sacrificed everything, even food and her patients, so that we could have dinner and be taken care of. I would not be the woman I am today without her helping and molding my life. Her name is Connie and she's the best person I know. And so I wrote her and said, hey, you know, we're going to talk about your mom. And she said, I didn't even mention her birthday's May 2nd. So if you could squeeze in a happy birthday, it would make her year. But she's also in the profit process of adopting so we got this email a few months ago number 13 14 and 15 they're two years old four and 16 years old so wow uh, like just what a few months has made a difference she's adopted three more kids since we've gotten this email how incredible is connie so incredible it's i i love adoption stories i think they're like some of my most favorite feel-good stories but to go through the process and to adopt multiple children and to raise them and and to just keep going with that as your life. That's so amazing and so incredible and so needed really in this world. So yes, I'm so thankful for Connie and everything that she has done for all the children that she has adopted. 500 kids she's had come through her, her family. Like I'm assuming foster care. That is incredible to be. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just, it made my whole day to read this. So thank you so much, Connie. We appreciate you and all the moms. We appreciate you so much. And I know, like I said, it's not always an easy day for people, but we're thinking of you and thinking of the moms and um, hope you do have a good Mother's Day, whatever that looks like for you. And um, Mandy, get me out of what I'm saying because I'm starting to sound like I'm going in circles again. Please help me no, in I circle. Think, I think you sounded very Melissa. Fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> That's terrible. Terrible, terrible. Well, have a great week, everyone. And we'll be back All right. next week. Mandy? Yes, we will. At the same time, same place with a new story. <laughs> have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.